We'll pick up with the seventh verse in Ephesians 3. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, will you, in these moments, give us ears to hear you? Will you give us hearts that are open to being pierced by your love and by your grace? Will you cause your spirit to be both our comforter and our teacher? and the one who moves our wills. And we ask for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I heard early in the week about a movie called Get Low. And I read a a little thing about it, and I thought, I've got to see that movie. And so that night... On Netflix, I, um, you know, I went through all the, the things to, you know, eventually find the movie uh, and watched it. The movie has Robert Duvall in it, who, it's, of course, it's going to be a great, he's a great actor. But he played a, a 1930s hermit who had uh, lived by himself for... Uh, 40 years, uh, there were all kinds of rumors about him in the town where he lived. And what he did was he, he decided that he wanted to throw a funeral for himself while he was still alive. And so he uh, sought out uh, the preacher in town and he walked in, getting in a scuffle on the way and everything, but he, he walked in uh, to speak to the preacher, and he put a big wad of money on the table there. And he said, it's time for me to get low. And the preacher said, what's that mean? And he said, well, I, I got to get, 
get serious about things. I want to buy a funeral. I said, for who? For me. And so they, they talked a little bit about that. He basically wanted, you know, he said, what have you heard about me? And he said, well, I've heard stories. And he said, I want people to come tell stories that they've heard about me. Well, the, the, the preacher said, well, you know, my mom taught me gossip isn't a good thing. He said, Here, here's what really matters. He said, what, what matters is when you come to the end of your life that you're ready for the next one. Now, you made peace with God, sir. And the hermit, Felix's answer was, I paid. The preacher and says, well, Mr. Bush, you can't buy forgiveness. It's free. But you got to ask for it. Where he grabs his money and stomps out. It was poignant to me to see that response. What you find out then as the movie unfolds is that he had committed a great sin as a young man. And it had ultimately led to the death of a young woman. He didn't kill her, but he felt responsible. And so he decided, as he put it, to build his own jail and not to have a wife or a family or grandchildren and to cut himself off from all communication. That was his way of dealing with it, hoping against hope that that would pay for his sin. What, what a picture, as I, as I watched that, I thought, what a picture of self-justification, self-atonement that he tried. He tried to pay for his own sin and still after 40 years by himself still did not feel forgiven because he wasn't. And I thought, what a picture of so many of us, not to that degree certainly or in that way, but who attempt a, a self-atonement, a self-justification to try to get over something that I've done in my past. Now, we've gotten to know the Apostle Paul, both through the book of Acts and, and now further in Ephesians. And he was a flawed man, he loved Christ, but he had his weaknesses. Now, before he met Christ, he would have been in that camp, in that category of, of the self-atonement, self-justification, trying to work his way to whatever it was to know God. But as far as I can see, once he came to know Christ, he didn't fall into that trap of self-atonement again. Why not? 
How did he avoid it? And, and then here's the bigger question for us is, what, what about us? Is there, is there something in your life where you are somehow trying to self-atone, trying to get over, trying to get, get behind you, and you're trying to do it in your own energies or by your own works? Let's take a look at uh, Paul's coping with this and what, what enabled him to see it rightly. He was just simply driven to the gospel again and again because he saw his own weaknesses. And I am convinced that as we see ourselves, if we really understand ourselves, it will drive us to Christ as well. First of all, look at, uh, look at verse 8. We see him his qualifications. Now, I have, I've had the privilege uh, of preaching at a number of ordination services of young men being ordained or installation services, and I always consider it such an honor to, to be preaching at the beginning of someone else's ministry. And I, I've used a lot of different kinds of texts uh, from there, but one of them that I have used several times uh, is by the Apostle Paul, and it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're not going to turn to it, but very simply, in, in that passage, he talks about ministry and, and the weightiness of ministry, and then he, base, he, he asks the question, who is sufficient to such a task? So he's asking the question where the, the obvious answer from what he said is, none of us, I'm not sufficient, but Christ is. And, and I think that's what we all need to remember in ministry, but certainly he, he, Paul under, understood this. Uh, to, to take the gospel to somebody, some have described that as bearing a treasure in earthen vessels. I like that phrase because it's, it's descriptive. In other words, you know, it's like me having just a you know, a mud vessel, but having a great treasure inside. That's what we are when we take the gospel to others. And that's how, how Paul saw himself. In verse 8, it says, it says to me that though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I think there's a, a, that phrase in there is just striking where he says, I'm the very least of all the saints. Some translations say, I am less than the least. Less than the least? What's less than the least? You can't be less than the least. If you're, the, you're either the least or you're not the least, but, but that's, that's how he assessed uh, himself. Literally, I'm more least. I'm more least <laughs> than. Uh, I'm sorry, English teachers. I know that's going to bother you for the next 25 minutes, but but that that's how extreme it was to Paul. He's almost grasping for a description of how he understood himself in in sharing the gospel. Now you contrast that with how he described himself and his 
qualifications from a human perspective, and actually it's the, the, in a sense it's the qualifications of uh, how God had prepared him, but who he was before Christ, where in Philippians 3, he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he starts listing his various things that he could trust in. He, he could and probably did self-justify himself. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, and, and other Jews would go, wow, wow, wow. You know, th- these are all qualifications. A Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That, that was his view of himself before Christ. And now he says, I'm, I'm less than the least. Uh, if, you, if you look at Paul's progression and uh, his progression in terms of how he viewed himself and, and how he came to know Christ deeper and deeper, you see how he looked at himself as well. And I want to, I wanna, those are in your outline, not in the correct order, but in 1 Corinthians 15, which would be early in his ministry, he says this, For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But, but you know what? A lot of people would say, well, you know what? Least of the apostles is still a pretty good position, right? You know, even the least apostle is way above us. Okay, that, that's where we see early on. And then later in his ministry is what we just saw. Ephesians 3.8, though I'm the very least of all the saints. Do you see this progression? It's not a progression up to thinking more highly of himself, but to thinking really more realistically of who he was. And then late in his ministry, 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, he says this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Do you see that progression? He basically says, I'm on top again. <laughs> I'm on top in terms of being the, the foremost sinner in the world. Why does he view himself this way? I think here's the point. The more we get to know Christ, the more he got to know Christ, the lower his estimation of his own accomplishments became but then the greater his understanding of grace became. Sanctification, let's do some theology here. Sanctification is is us growing more and more every day to be like Christ. It's a process. We die to sin, live to righteousness, we repent, we uh, are forgiven, we move to be more and more like Christ. Now, some of you may have heard or been taught what would, I would say is an erroneous view, and that's, that's the, the victorious Christian life. And that can go 
several ways. It can be that you might have been told at some point, well, if you're struggling with sin, then you may not, you're probably not a believer. Or it could be you've chosen not to take advantage of the victory that God gives us. Let me give you another angle on if you're struggling with sin. If you're struggling with sin, instead, you should see that struggle with sin as proof of your sanctification. As, as proof that God is working in your heart. Now, I'm not saying stay in that struggle and quit struggling, but people who don't know Christ don't struggle with sin. Doesn't bother them. So if you're struggling, and even if you've had some setbacks, in other words, fallen back into things you thought you were beyond, understand that God's not through with you. Stay in the struggle. Don't give up. If you ever read a Christian biographies or autobiographies, one of the things that strikes me about them is that, that quite often at the end or near the end of, of uh, these wonderful, dear, saintly Christians' lives, you'll see them, uh, you know, some of them have doubts, some of them... Uh, all they can think about is how they have failed Christ and, and that kind of a thing. And, you know, from a human perspective, you look at that and you say, but they haven't. That, that person's way better than I'm ever going to be. And so it, that didn't make sense to me until I realized what that is is that the closer they got to Christ and his perfection and his holiness the more they saw their imperfections. So in other words, they're dealing with things that, you know, I'm, I haven't even seen in my life yet. And so, as we grow closer to Christ, those struggles will not be over. They will, they will continue. But it, it must not drive us to despair but right back to what Paul was driven to, and that is his understanding of grace and the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, look at his understanding of his uh, need for grace. We talk about unmerited favor. From Paul's perspective, that's, that's not even adequate, unmerited favor. That's true. You don't, you, you don't earn it. But he, he would, I think he would say it's ill-deserved. <laughs> uh, not only do we not deserve his favor, we deserve his wrath. Now let me back up, and we're, I just want to touch on what Paul had said back in chapter 2. We're not going backwards in the book, don't worry. But for us, it was weeks ago when we hit this. But if you were reading through this as a letter, it was a minute or two ago. So I want to remind you the, the context of this, what he said in chapter 2, verse 8. He says, 
For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ill-deserved favor is what grace is. Um, you know, I go over to uh, Gold's Gym to exercise for my heart and so on, and uh, normally I just go in there, I either get on a treadmill or an elliptical, and I, I, I do my hour and a half, no, I, I do my <laughs> routine, and, uh, and usually I do that and then I leave. But once in a while, I have this kind of existential experience when I'm, I'm there. And so a lot of you are in the same gym. If you ever see me there, I'm just kind of laughing. It, here's, here's what once in a while goes through my mind is how really ridiculous all this looks. Uh, here we are, you know, in there working up a sweat, um, you know, making, making the, the incline more, making it tougher and everything. And we're... We're in two big, long lines of people, and we are going nowhere. <laughs> I mean, when I step off, I step into the same place I was before all that effort. Well, and it makes me think, you know, if a Martian came down or something, they would say, oh, those poor people are being punished for something. And that's actually, that's actually the, uh, where treadmills came from. Uh, I've, I've read this, Elise Fitzpatrick writes, in Victorian England, treadmills weren't found in air-conditioned health clubs, they were found in prisons, which, which actually makes a lot of sense, too. But <laughs> Treadmills, or tread wheels, as they were called, were uh, for... Um, punishment. And what they would do, I mean, they didn't look like ours and, and so on, but what they would do is they would put a prisoner, and that, that was your only hope. That was all you could do is right there all day long. And they, they made them so they weren't even productive. You know, there were some that farmers or whatever could use in another way that'd be productive. But so your only hope, if you were on the treadwheel in prison, was that someday they'd say, you've You've paid enough, and you can, you can leave now. That is not what our Christian life should be like. But I'm afraid I, I encounter far too many believers that are basically on a tread wheel, and they feel like they've been chained to this, and they're going, they're going nowhere. And they, they, they step off for a while and they're in the same place and, or maybe backwards. That's not what he's describing here. Now, if you, as you struggle with sin in your life, you've got to remember that Christ has set you free indeed. You don't have to stay there. And your work is not going to pay your way off of the treadmill of your self-atonement. 
or your works. Can you imagine Paul ever saying, I deserve forgiveness? I can't. Or I deserve salvation. Now, you know, he was a terrorist. A terrorist who saw to the death of Christians. Now, if we're not careful, we might have the temptation of saying, yeah, I'm, I've never been as bad as Paul. What you were like before Christ, I don't care what you were like. What you were like before Christ deserved eternal death. It deserved hell. And there's only one hope. You might say, well, I, I was good before Christ. Paul says, your goodness before God, if you plop your goodness down before God, it is filthy, stinking rags. Look at, you know, it's not fun to think about this. Here's the fun, though. Because that's where Paul's response comes from. Look at what he says about the gospel. He calls it the unsearchable riches of Christ. You're not even going to call it that until you realize how impossible it is for you ever to reach God without Christ. But the more you realize that, the more you will describe it with words like unsearchable, unboundless, impossible for us to grasp riches of Christ. The sign about the lost dog from the owner, he said there's a great uh, a cash reward for whoever finds my lost dog. Here's a description. He's only got three legs. He's blind in the left eye, missing a right ear. His tail's been broken off. He was neutered accidentally by a fence. <laughs> he, he's almost deaf, and he answers by the name Lucky. We would say he's not very lucky, but think about it. You know what makes him lucky? We don't believe in luck, but you know what makes him that way? He's got an owner that loves him just the way he is. Exactly the way he is. We have a God who has done everything for us, while we were his enemy, when we couldn't even respond to him. Our worship service today has been book, bookended by two great hymns. The first one we sang by Robert Robinson come thou fount. Listen to the words that we sang and put them in the context of what we've just talked about. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. 
daily I'm constrained to be. I'm a debtor to grace. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, like a, like a chain, like, like um, handcuffs, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. John Newton was a wicked sinner as a young man. He was a cruel slave trader. And then he met Christ. At the age of 82, Newton said this, and he's the one that wrote Amazing Grace. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior, the unsearchable riches of Christ, amazingly available to us by trusting in him alone. Let's bow together. Every honest person in this room, Lord, will admit that we are prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God we love. And so we are asking you, because we're, we're not capable of binding ourselves to you, we're asking you to bind our wandering hearts to you, to experience your wonderful grace, your incredible love, through Jesus Christ, and we ask this in his name. Amen.